Shut up and sit down. And welcome to episode 94 of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here with co-host Pete Wall and producer Jack Mills. Lads, lads, I didn't say gentlemen this week, I've said lads to make you feel happier. How are we? Very, very well, thank you. Um, yeah, good. I noticed you didn't call our faithful listeners strangers this time, Paul. Is this a change? Is this a change of tack that we're going to... Uh... No, it's a complete, it's a complete mindfuck. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, we are back. It's episode 94. Uh, we've been doing our usual audio shenanigans beforehand. We're just working on getting the, the quality of the show sounding better and better for the people who loyally follow and listen to the show week in and week out. We massively appreciate the effort of anybody who does that right, Paul. Yeah, I kind of I kind of want to dive in and just say, like to the guys that have, have continued listening through us moving to different towns thank you very much we are aware there have been some issues we are working on them hopefully this episode will show some improvement but i just really want to be, say a massive thanks to the people that have, have bared with us to be honest because it's not ideal it is what it is but we're working on it Pete, back to you with positivity Pete. um paul under great pressure and great heat diamonds are formed sir diamonds so yeah we're, <laughs> we're going to be producing podcast diamonds from now on and what's exciting as well paul anderson is that this week we've got i would say a, a veritably juicy week in terms of films to review i looked down the slate of the stuff that we were going to cover today and just really rub my hands at it uh, in my mind not that literally uh but like yeah i mean quite awkward the, to be fair but what, rubbing your hands is that in somehow is that somehow sexualized it's awkward for you that you've said that i'd say because it's a, a reveal into your life and by the way whilst we're whilst we're being candid paul has just been eating on camera something that looked like the limb of a young infant child so um, that that was also awkward. Right, I'm not having I'm not having that because when you find that you're apparently moving to Bath, Pete, you keep talking about it. When you come to Bath, you'll find a shop that should have been called Taka, is called Taka Taka. It's like an incredibly it's a re, it's just a kebab that isn't shit. It's so good they named the shop twice. If you live in Bristol, there's a Taka Taka in Bristol. Trust me, you miss uh, it. Or if you go to the cinema, uh, Natalie Portman's got <laughs> another documentary telling you why you shouldn't eat animals. So, you know, go either way. It's all about choice. Yes, but anyway, back back to films, Paul. The feature today, first of all, very exciting because we've been sort of like hyped on it for a little while and we finally both got to see it. That is um, horror, chiller, mind wrecker, hereditary. We'll get to that in due course. Oh my word, yeah. Peter. Oh Be my before word. Before that though, man, <laughs> at this time, we always step into the foyer and we talk about something in the world of films and you had the inspired this uh, idea this week that what we would do instead of that kind of topical discussion is actually run down... Rather than E3 discussion about... I enjoyed games. that shit. But yeah, uh, is run okay. down the best films of the year so far in our humble opinion. So we're going to do a top five each. Um, I don't know, we haven't talked about it beforehand, but do you want to start, Paul? Shall I start? Should we just dive straight in there? I'll throw, I'll throw it in at number five. And to be fair, at this time of year, as we said when we did the mid-year top five last year, it's quite difficult to know where these will end up. But so I will say, I'm going to try and say in a particular order. I'm going to do my best to say this is in order. So at number five, I'm throwing down Coco, Pete. I'm throwing down Pixar's Coco. It has just stayed with me. I still, rudely, considering how many Blu-rays I buy, I haven't bought the Steelbook yet, and I haven't watched it since the cinema, 
but it is still stayed with me. Like Coco just was just an emotional roller coaster, and I absolutely loved it. So that's where I am in number five. Yeah, Coco. it was one of those, wasn't it, when we did the review that I think as we were talking about it, my appreciation of the movie sort of increased because you were. You were, you were really passionate about it. I remember Jack was quite a big fan, if I'm not getting that wrong. Yeah, that's Coco. correct, yeah. Yeah, and so I think with you guys being so up on the film, it went from a sort of three-star to more like a four-star film during that conversation. Well, no, it's, it's, it's one of those films. It's, it's really nice that, like, we, Pete, we both know each other and we are stubborn as shit if we want to be, especially if it comes to films. And I think there's been a handful of films where you've changed my mind and I've changed your mind. And I genuinely, I'm quite proud that I think I might have changed your mindset of Coco, to be honest. So, and I haven't seen it since, I just think, and I will say part of the the main reason that it sits there in my top five and it has stayed with me because it is the perfect, perfect, perfect foil to Trump's horrible Mm. America, which I said in my original review, so I'm repeating myself. But yeah, just the feel good factor about it. I just loved it. I just loved every minute of it. Coco was great. Pete, cool. Um, well, uh, very different tack from my number five, but I'm doing the same as you, man. I'm trying to get an actual order out on these things rather than them being totally random. Uh, number five for me is one that crept up from almost nowhere. I wasn't really aware of anything to do with this movie until I went to see it at the cinema, and that is Ghost Stories. Um, ghost Stories. Oh, I, nice. I learned various things from Ghost Stories. One, I thought I strongly disliked Martin Freeman. Turns out not so much. He's really good in this. I never could have imagined that the predominantly comedy actor Paul Whitehouse could make me feel so very scared. Um, the, the film was just like the the kind of perfect blend of creepy, um, sort of shocking, and also intelligent that it really sort of all chimed for me. And I think the way that the strands of that film are pulled together are underappreciated in terms of the both complexity and the sort of craft with which they're handled. So yeah, I think Ghost Story is massively underrated. I don't think it's been seen by enough people and I, I wanted to put it on this list, if nothing else, for that reason. Like, more people need to see it. Well, Pete, Pete, I will, I will let you know that when I went to see Ghost Stories, uh, the woman behind me stood up and she went, that's the shittest film I've ever seen. So I'm not convinced the woman that was in the cinema with me agrees with you, but I really like Ghost Stories. It hasn't made my top five of the year so far, but I certainly agree with you. It needs yeah. a bit more love. What have you got? Um, what have you got next? Yeah, totally. It's a good show. Well, we've got number four. I'm going to go straight into number four. I'm going to go with The Shape of Water, Pete, that we had a little bit mm. of a disagreement on, I think. But The Shape of Water... I think stayed with me. We had uh, we had a discussion on the show that if it leaves you with goosebumps, it's done its job. Michael Shannon's performance was incredible. Del Toro's direction for me just delivered. Like I really, really liked *The Shape of Water*. It just it was one of the. I'd say there's been a number of films already this year that haven't quite lived up to expectation, which we talked about in terms of the Oscar nominees. We talked about this, I think, uh, I think back in in Oscar season in fairness. And I think you said that not all of them lived up to expectation. For me, the one that did was The Shape of Water. I love The Shape of Water. It stuck with me. I'm looking. It's out next week. I'm looking forward to watching it a second time. But yeah, hundred yeah, percent The Shape of Water. Because I lock in it. on exactly the it. sort of other end of what you're saying there, which is that like for me, as you kind of alluded to. Um, it's not that the film didn't work, it's just that it didn't live up to the incredibly lofty expectations that I had from, from yeah. that director and, and less so that cast. Um, I enjoyed the film, but it, unlike you, I guess it hasn't stuck with me as, as well. Um, number four for me then is um, one that definitely will stick with me and I like you've said about a couple of, well, at least one of the films so far, you want to go back to it fairly urgently and that, that is Isle of Dogs. Um, Isle of Dogs for me just had 
the, the best of so many elements of what make Wes Anderson good when Wes Anderson is good. Um, and I know for other people that won't be the case. And I know for some people all of the sort of um, the worst excesses. Uh, yeah, for me, in right. Fact. It, for me. It, it feels like we're developing <laughs> yeah. some sort of pattern here. But yeah, like uh, I, I understand <laughs> why people find his um, sensibilities kind of cloying at times or uh, overly mannered or a little bit um, uh, 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 like a remove at a distance all the time. And it can feel a bit cold and a bit like clever, clever. But the film really worked for me. I think a big part of that goes down to the animation team and the way that they've managed to conjure characters who live and breathe far beyond just strong vocal performances, which there surely, you know, are from Brian Cranston et al. But yeah, I just found the, the film sort of um, beguiling and like a film that can make your jaw kind of go a bit slack when you're just watching a top-down sequence of the preparation of some sushi, I think to me is doing something right. So yeah, I loved Isle of Dogs. Can't wait to see it again. What have you got? at number what are we three three yeah so prologue end cheers Wes Anderson for that one uh, we have come to you were never really here which is a film oh. that you hated oh. <laughs> it yep. has just stayed with me again it seems to be like it just seemed to me this year like the, the release window between cinema and home release seems to be massively extended because surely you were never really here should be out by now I think it's out next week I really want an opportunity to see it again I know you've said about, oh, I'm sick of people saying these films are brutal, but it was brutal. It was, it's just a raw film for me. And it's just a film that I came out of going, okay, I need to see it twice to see whether it will end up this high up by end of the year list. But when it came out of the cinema, the only experience I can compare this to is when I saw, is when me and you, Pete, saw Mad Max Rory Road together. That's the only cinematic experience I, I can compare you were never really here to, as it just came out going, what the fuck did I just watch? That blew me away. That's where I stand. Yeah. Really here. See, we're almost poor. We're almost lockstep because <laughs> I came out of it saying, what the fuck did I just watch? Uh, I feel vaguely depressed. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, the, the sort of um, hammering skulls in to the sounds of a piano falling down the stairs didn't work for me as well, evidently. But we haven't got time to get back into that discussion now. Um, I will move on a pace. Now, I can't say too much about this one, Paul, for a reason that you all understand very clearly, which is that we haven't actually done the review yet. But number three of films of the year so far for me is Hereditary, which we're going to talk about oh, later. Oh, shit, you just stole so, my phone there, motherfucker. <laughs> is, where, where, is that the same position for you no okay uh yeah so i mean we'll yeah watch this space uh listen on uh, 30 minutes 20 minutes or whatever and we'll get to the full review hereditary is really really good if you haven't seen it yet get yourself out there and see it what have you got next right Paul? i'm gonna do what you often do is just drop, drop a controversial bomb into uh into a top five listing or a top ten listing which is what we always do i'm gonna go at joint number two and number one are you ready for this Hereditation. Sure. Hereditation, because I can't decide. I can't decide between Hereditary and Annihilation so far this year. I think, and we'll get into this in a bit. I think the two films have got quite a lot in common, and I adore them both. And I can't quite pick between the two because Hereditary is very fresh in my mind, and Annihilation is, I think, the only film I've ever stopped watching and then immediately start watching again immediately afterwards. So I'm torn mm. between the two. They're both incredible. They've both, in my opinion, got a lot in common in the fact they develop such a... For me, horror is not about jump scares. It's not about creatures in the dark. It's about films that make you psychologically uncomfortable. And for me, both Hereditary and Annihilation did that. I think 
in the scope of time, Hereditary probably will come out on top of Annihilation, but it's a very, at the moment, I can't decide between the two, so I've mashed them into mm. one film. <laughs> it's a, Fair it's enough. A, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to live in a world which is a combination of the world of Hereditary <laughs> and the world of Annihilation. I think that would that would just leave me like a dribbling mess. But uh, yeah, no, I, pre- I appreciate the joint first pick. Uh, I've, that means I've got two left. I feel entirely selfish. Um, number two for me, uh, the other end of the spectrum, I suppose, from, from those two is Lady Bird. Um, it, again, I, we keep going back to it stuck with me. I don't know how much it genuinely has stuck with me, but I just thought like screenplay wise, it stood out as one of the best screenplays that I've seen brought to the screen in, in quite a while um i think that laurie metcalf and um greta gerwig are fantastic and i think that it was a lot more relatable than maybe people wanted to give it credit for when i think in certain factions it was written off as a little bit do you know um, when uh, i said earlier about coco about when this year we've both we've both listened to each other talk about a film and revised our opinion upwards lady Mm -hmm. bird was the one that you made me change my mind on so that's good it's a good it's good exchange it's nice because i heard you talk about lady bird i was like no i've misjudged it i've misjudged it so. Well, what is funny there, Paul, is like we we have the power, this incredible power that we're that we're bigging up today to sort of turn each other's opinions around. But in both cases, neither of those films have made it onto the respective top fives that we have. <laughs> like Coco didn't get onto yeah. my list, Ladybird yeah, yeah. didn't get onto you yours. Yeah, yeah. It's a power, but it's a, it's a limited power, I think. Uh, number one for me is the uh, objectively best film of the year, and that is uh, Phantom Thread. Uh, well, yeah, what can I say that I didn't say before? It is. Again, I get it. I get that it won't be for all people. Um, I understand that the the tailoring will not be no, to the uh, to the liking of, of everybody. But um, I just think it, it was an actor and a director at the absolute top of their power. And then like supporting performances by um, Vicky Creeps, we, we highlighted at the time, of course, and, uh, and uh, the actress whose name I've completely forgotten, Leslie Manville, Manville, yeah. Leslie Manville uh, were, were both excellent as well. I, I kind of got drawn in by the subject matter. I love the way that, that uh, P.T. Anderson got to deal with something that is so knowingly controlled and sort of suffocating because it matched exactly uh, sort of form and content for me so yeah Phantom Thread I, I just thought was wonderful and I think it just carries on it, it just to finish Paul it just carries on like for me this this almost um, unending run of Paul Thomas Anderson being if not the greatest one of the very greatest living film directors um, so that's why it's at number one so far I don't know see I don't know Pete I, I liked Phantom Thread a lot don't get me wrong as, as, as we established when we reviewed it but for me it's not a standout Paul Thomas Anderson film I think there are other films that have stayed with me more than this one I think technically it's beautifully made but there's just something about it that didn't grasp me as much as previous Paul Thomas Anderson films have done I mean like There Will Be Blood is one of my all time favourite films I'm not sitting there and saying you're wrong to put it in the top five because Phantom Thread is an incredible film we're not going to argue about that it's a good film or not it just didn't grab me as much as Paul, other Paul yeah, Thomas Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, I, I might be a bit of a simplistic way to look at it, but I suppose uh, a big pull for me is, as well with that movie is that, like, it's not a joke. I'm genuinely interested in, in female fashion and, like, clothing design and stuff like that. And that's the most superficial level on which to read the movie, but it is definitely an in. Is that why you're wearing an Attack of the Brain Eaters t-shirt, Pete, at the moment? <laughs> yeah, that, that is why. That is why. Um, yeah, I, I like to do um, maybe a few honourable mentions at time like this and I'm not going to be stopped so um, I just wanted to throw out a couple I won't review them but um, the the film that was set on was it the Isle of 
Sky, is that right? Uh, Beast is uh, the one I'm talking about. I haven't about. seen Beast yet. I've yet to catch up with that. I'm jealous because really I'm good, very, very really good, good thing. well worth it. And I'm basically and annoyingly. So, so do you know what? I'm jealous of you. I live in a town that showed that at the cinema, and I haven't seen it. That is shameful of me, and you have. So yeah. I hold my hands up in shame. Not acceptable. I haven't seen Beast we, yet. But by the so, way, we we saw it at the cinema, mate. So like, before you go bigging up your town again, we we got it over here in Little Silly World. Old yeah, little podunk Cheltenham. We got, we got. Well, I wouldn't have seen it in but anyway, because I hate Cinema. Um, <laughs> in addition, Paul, we we can't bypass yeah. this section, which is the let's give some props for comedy films when they're good comedy films section. Uh, both Game Night and Blockers are genuinely funny. Game and- Night was great. I still haven't seen. I'm very excited to see Blockers. I haven't seen Blockers yet. I'm looking forward to it in in a big way. Game Night possibly might touch my top ten as I've rewatched it. It might touch my top ten at the end of the year. Mm. Game Night is fantastic. So if Blockers is anywhere near game night, then I'm very excited. It's very good. It's very good. And um, for the final one is just one that dropped on January the 1st, and I think, again, passed people by. I know you've seen it, Paul. Uh, that's Super Dark Times that came to Netflix exclusively. Um, it's a film that's very easy to miss. I'm not saying that it's not going to trouble my top 10 at the end of the year, but I think it is one of those films that deserves just, like, uh, pushing people in its direction because it does a thing that a film like uh, What Richard Did does... Um, the the Lenny Abramson film. So yeah, it, it worked on on a few levels for me, and I, I really enjoyed it. So yeah, anything else that springs to mind, Paul, that you want to throw? Because I can't just like do my own honourable mentions and not <laughs> let you do yours. Off, no. uh, Cargo, yeah, Cargo, sure. the Netflix exclusive. Like Cargo, like the first half good, the second half. Honestly, I sat there. It's one of those films, and I think I said this when I reviewed it. I sat there, I was sat there with my wife when the ending rolled. I was just like. Oh my god, that film just leveled up on its on its conclusion, like mm. incredible conclusion. Again, honourable mention for Martin Freeman here. Like he did really well. Didn't really expect to enjoy it massively, and I think actually knocked it out of the park. I think Car- Cargo was fantastic. Um, what else have I really liked this year? Black Panther, Pete. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. Black Panther, like fuck, fuck Infinity War. Black Panther, Black Panther is the superhero movie of the year. Infinity War. It was okay. We've talked about it. I didn't dislike it. Black Panther knocked it into the knocked it into the wide grass. Like Black Panther was was brilliant. Like standalone makes means a lot makes a lot more sense to me. It wasn't weighed down with the weight of the wider Avengers universe. It was an incredible celebration of of black culture uh, and just felt very different to anything that came before. And I thoroughly enjoyed Black Panther. And I'm going to throw another one in there. Solo. Yeah, I like Solo. Solo too. Yeah, it's worth Solo a shout. Is, it's an honourable mention. It's not as good as Black Panther. It's an honourable mention for me because I love Star Wars. Basically, because I like Solo, Pete, I've now in, I've allowed myself to start playing Star Wars Battlefront 2 again because I've realised that I do still like Star Wars and it's fine. So Solo is an honourable mention because it got me back on track with Star Wars after The Last Jedi really upset me. Not a film of the year, but an honourable mention because I like Star Wars again now. So we'll move on from that. <laughs> cool. So yeah, I'll throw those top fives from Paul and I up on the show notes for this episode. So have a look if you've uh, missed, you know, what we've gone through there or you want to make a note of those movies and, and track them down. Um, but we will be back in just a moment with our section of the show that we like to call Popcorn Movies. And back indeed we are, Peter, with, with popcorn movies. Uh, so the uh, the people that listened last week, I think we'll start with, um, which actually 
In fairness, Pete, I normally don't like people bringing up football. I don't like the mention of football. I don't really like the idea that it's, it's, it's attributed to the same to the same level as film. But you did come up, Pete, with an incredible idea last week, which was go on, Pete, tell, tell us what it is. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. No, it's, it's a wicked it's an all idea. right idea. Come on, I'm going to give you some. I was literally. I was just like, I don't even like the World Cup. But I'm so proud of Pete at this point. I don't think I've ever been prouder of you, Pete. Well, <laughs> yeah. The 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 idea was basically yeah. Because as Paul says, he doesn't really care about football. I can't shoehorn it into this show really. But I've found a way, which is to um, review a film in each of the next few episodes, which comes from the country that is playing England that week or in those few days. Obviously, there was a football match that occurred. Well, actually, last night at the time of recording, but a couple of days ago by the time this, this thing's probably widely listened to, uh, that game was between England and Tunisia. And, of course, we absolutely gubbed them. In the 91st minute. Uh, so That's it, not a gubbing, is it? it, it in, <laughs> well, well that, that was kind of inherent in the way I said that, I suppose. Uh, but, but, yeah, uh, in honour of our Tunisian uh, foes from that game, we have found a Tunisian film worthy of a little look, worthy of review. And it, and it might be, probably, Paul, the first Tunisian film I've ever seen in my life, as far as I know. Uh, no, I've got actually uh, a steelbook box set of uh, the finest Tunisian cinema ever. No, I haven't. No, it's the first Tunisian film I think I've seen. So, yeah, I'll be honest. But, yes, what was it, Pete? What was so it? The, well, what... What I basically did, because it's tough to know where to start with like a country that you, you know know so little about in terms of the filmmaking landscape, is I looked for a movie that had been submitted as the Tunisian um, submission for the Academy Awards. This one, I believe, was in 2016, but I think it may be actually the most recent... It was made in 2015, I yeah, think. The, yeah, but it might be the most recent submission to the Academy Awards for Tunisia, because the, there's not an obligation, obviously, to submit every single year. Uh, the film is called As I Open My Eyes... Um, um, yeah, and as Paul said, from 2015, um, it's directed by a female director called Leila Bouzid, um, and it stars a pair of actresses who are called uh, Bea Medhafa plays a, an 18-year-old girl in a kind of coming-of-age story, which centres on her desire to uh, break the the break down the barriers that surround her in Tunisian society in 2010, just pre-revolution. But it's also about breaking down personal barriers between her and her mother. Her mother in the movie is played by an actress uh, called Galia Benali. But Galia Benali, as I understand it, is in fact a, a fairly renowned Tunisian singer and artist. And as actually, I think... Okay, well, that's interesting because the song's about quite a lot about yeah music, and there's so, yeah. I think there's musical credits for both the actress who plays the mother and the actress who plays the daughter on the sort of official soundtracking of this movie um, but yeah I thought that that uh, woman that, who plays the mother as a sort of kicking off point to this I guess Paul was um, every bit as compelling as the central 18 year old um, actress at the centre of the story here um, what's your take on this movie what did you think and what have I missed out in my lead in that you want, want to put in there I think I think the lead in the, I think the lead in done it done it justice. In fairness, I, I really really like this film. A hundred percent, like uh, like the the performances the performances are are fantastic. I think it's 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 an eye opener for me. I'll, I'll be perfect. It's an it's an eye opener for me because the first I knew about the Tunisia the Tunisia uprising the Tunisia rebellion. As in fairness, it, it 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 probably is. I don't think that's an unfair way to describe it. Like the uprising of the people against the Tunisian authorities. The first and only thing I knew about it was really just seeing it on the BBC News going, oh, look at this, the people have rose, rose up against. But rose up against what? 
I, I didn't really know. And then you you watch you watch this film and you sit there and go, oh my god, they're pretty much rising up. Like the the events in this film could have happened in something like in something like basically in like a film that could have been set in like Stasi Germany. Like that's mm. like I I didn't really have any really appreciation of just how horribly imposing the authorities were on the fact on on people even singing songs that might be remote remotely anti-government um yeah and it just yeah like yeah sorry pete step in well i was just going to say yeah to, to tie that back to the plot of course because we sort of missed this part out the the girl at the center who who wants to be a singer essentially at times with sort of fairly traditional sounding Tunisian music at times veering into what is almost like Tunisian punk music. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah, a, there's a sequence yeah. in the movie, Paul, that, that was reminiscent to me of Green Room. When you saw Aaliyah Shawkat at the yeah, front singing, like, uh, yeah, na- Nazi scum fuck off or whatever yeah. in that movie, it, it felt like they had that atmosphere where there's like this palpable tension in the air. And yes, the violence in Green Room is overt and the violence in this movie sort of broils beneath the surface, but it's a weird comparison. And I would say on the mother-daughter level as well, another maybe slightly uh, esoteric uh, comparison is with Lady Bird. I thought the way that this, you've got this daughter who's reaching out to sort of frame her own identity whilst being a bit too naive to do that entirely effectively and then the mother who wants to resist at all costs but still wants to bring her daughter back to her bosom and be connected seemed to me like yeah it's basically the Tunisian ladybird but um yeah (laughs) like a a lot of it a lot of it I would say the vast majority of it Paul certainly worked for me too and um I, I just think like the central image of a girl who wants to express herself in the most direct and the most um yeah the most direct form of communication really is just just singing how you feel. And that's all she wants. And that's all she can't have because of where she's from, where she's growing up and the political environment that she's seated in. But I just I just find the whole thing the whole thing a little bit terrifying, to be honest. And obviously it's it's um it's directed by a woman who uh, is Tunisian. Uh, and just I find the whole thing like fundamentally quite terrifying to be honest, because the lyrics that they're singing in the songs in the film, I'm just like, what's, what has upset the government in what they're saying? Like, I don't really understand why this is so controversial. And then as the film goes on, you're just like, oh, wow. This, and this, I think it was, an, it was a real eye-opener for me because, as I said earlier, this is what I would anticipate expecting in, like, fucking in communist East Berlin, like, 50, 60 years ago. And then you sit there and go, this is less than 10 years ago. Well, yeah. And this has happened in our lifetime. It was a genuine eye-opener for and, me. And you've got this... Like 100%. Like, you've got this terrible sort of central contradiction as well, right? Which becomes more and more apparent as the film progresses, which is that, like, the the girl at the, at the centre, who is called Farah, I believe, the character. Uh, Farah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fa- Farah is, um, is increasingly... Um, she sort of desires self-expression not only through music but being allowed to just like dance and be like a young person and and have fun yeah it's insane and there's that scene there's that there's there's that one scene where where like the uh, there's there's someone of is somewhere someone at some point in the Tunisian security services is talking to Farah's mother and that he comes to see him and was like you need to be concerned about Farah because she danced and she danced she sung and had a drink and like and he said she was drunk in a male only bar she wasn't drunk she had a bit of a sing-song in a male-only bar and he's come to the mother and go, you need to be concerned about your daughter. And I'm like, this is, like, this is the world we live in now. Like, we, I just feel incredibly grateful as much as I hate our country's politics at the moment. It makes me feel incredibly grateful to live in the society we live in. Do you know where I come from? As I said, just an absolute eye-opener without a shadow of a doubt. Like, yeah, and, and what, what I was getting to there as well was like, um, 
she, yeah, so she wants to express herself uh, sort of physically and, and sexually, right? That's important to this yeah. film. She's in a relationship with a guy who's a little bit older. They want to hook up with each other like teenagers want to, like young people want to, and they want to sneak off and, and maybe like fumble around with each other and stuff. But then at the same time, the the administration around them uh, and, and all this kind of, all these rules and regulations and sort of public shaming are trying to lock down the, the sort of burgeoning sexuality of a young person. But then the threat against her when she gets into a like difficult spot later on is sexualized violence so it's yeah. like yeah, the, it's the most it's the most it's hypocritical reaction yeah. to trying to suppress uh, self expression i suppose but yeah we, we should move on paul but this one um we should reiterate is called as i open my eyes it was released in 2015 it may be slightly hard to come by but i know that because it was submitted for the academy awards it's a little bit more widely available than other films from tunisia let's say and we managed to get hold of uh, of copies ourselves so um yeah check it out if any of that sounded interesting well look I'll be, I'll be I'll be frank. Let us know, and we'll we transfer you. We'll we transfer you a file of the film. Fuck it, we'll just throw it down. We've got it. If you want to see it, we'll transfer you a file. <laughs> like... We absolutely will not do that. And that was a joke, but it was delivered in such a deadpan way that it almost went uh, went completely without regard. Uh, what else have you seen there, Paul Anderson? Uh, right, it was a film that I, I think we were considering doing a feature review for and you haven't had a chance to see it because there's been a little less time between podcasts than there normally is. Uh, in the time when you were enjoying the football and enjoying... Uh, was it Jamie Vardy's 91st Minute Goal? I think What's it was the, the film, film, though? What What's film, film have you watched? What's the film? Ocean's 8. We're at like half an hour. Ocean's right. 8. So I went to see Ocean's 8 uh, and it wasn't all that, to be honest. Mm. It wasn't all that. That's it. That's my review. <laughs> Yeah, I feel well. I feel Paul a little. I feel a little bit guilty because I kind of uh, off off mic and stuff when we were organising the show. I pushed a little bit for for this to be a second feature, and then I haven't seen it myself. Yeah, and I rushed. To, <laughs> I rushed to see it. Uh, yeah, so Ocean's Eight is uh, as people are probably aware. It's um, it's an it's an all female cast, which I'm I will hasten to add. I am all for. I think an all female cast is a great thing. I think the cast in this is incredible. You've got Sandra Bullock, who I don't really rate, but everyone else does. I know Pete particularly likes. You've got Kate Blanchett. Who else have you got in this, Pete? Help me out on this one. You've Rihanna. Got Rihanna. Uh, Anne Hathaway. Uh, Sarah Paulson. Um, Sarah Paulson, who's incredible. I think you've, you've got an incredible cast in this film. And I went into it being a little bit sceptical, but I went into it wanting to enjoy it. I was just like, we've got this cast with this chemistry together. Surely I'm going to be able to take some form of entertainment from this film unfortunately guys i really couldn't and there's there's two reasons for that the first reason is the heist itself is so 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 far-fetched that you just cannot believe it would ever possibly achieve they're trying to rob the met gala and they've got there's 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 one point in the film and minor spoiler warning where the necklace they're trying to steal is locked on by a mag um, uh, like a, a magnetic lock and Rihanna phones her sister and goes, can you solve the magnetic, magnetic lock? And within two minutes, they've solved the magnetic lock. Every time they come up with a problem, they've just fixed it immediately. So there's no tension. There's no tension. The, the heist's too easy. There's no tension because there's never any risk of it going wrong. And the whole film, to be honest, is just offensively forgettable considering how good the cast they've got on board is. So I would say the cast's incredible and there's someone on Letterboxd, and I'm not going to name who they are, who was like, I give this film four stars because it's got empowered women in it. That's not an excuse to give a bad film four stars. It's not a very good film. The empowered cast is great. This cast, 
are incredibly talented and deserve a lot better than the forgettable throwaway piece of trash that I watched that is Ocean's yeah. 8. Pete, over to you. Yeah, and I think that the sort of that, well, that's argument's kind of spurious, isn't it? Because the, the thing is that the, the cast is not an empowered cast. The cast is some no. women who got movie roles yeah. as they should. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. So I, yeah. I'm a bit, I'm a bit tired. When it comes to a thing like this, it's it's just tiring to me to talk about it being empowered. It's, and it's kind of patronising as well, you know. But Mindy Callen, Mindy Callen went on record going, well, the critics slugging it off. It's obviously just not for them. So, Mindy Culling, this is for you. My wife hated it as well. So, we'll move on. Well, and and, and asterisk uh, that uh, Wrinkle in Time's rubbish. Yeah. Right. Um, so, popcorn review for me this week. I had to boil it down to, to one, and it has to be this one. It is a film that I wanted to see a while ago. Finally caught up with it. Thoroughbreds uh, from director Ooh. Corey Finley. This Ooh, movie this is... It, it sort of lives or, or dies on the strength of two performances, the two central female characters played by Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor-Joy, both actresses that people will be, I would imagine, familiar with by this point. Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, of course, uh, so great in The Witch. In this thing, uh, the Olivia Cook character, Olivia Cook was, of course, in like Ready Player One recently, I guess, is, is one where people uh, would recognise her from. But she uh, plays a girl who is seemingly from wealth, and she, uh, or I should say, not she, her mother has hired a personal tutor to sit with her and help her get through the material that she has to do for her exams. I think she's doing like a, a literature exam or something like that. Uh, the tutor is Anya Taylor-Joy's character. And you can tell from the outset that there's this very kind of frosty aspect to their relationship whereby the girl receiving tutoring, Olivia Cook's character, um, knows that the other girl isn't really her friend and is being paid to be there. And at the same time they have to keep up initially this artifice that like oh no you know we're just hanging out we're just people hanging out so like one of the first interactions they have is about how much money did my mum pay you and like trying to get this information out because it's almost like the weird kid who hasn't got any of her own friends now has a sort of paid tutor slash friend right um from this point on it turns into something a bit like uh is that movie called Heavenly Creatures with Kate Winslet? Yeah, a, a little bit the territory of that movie where you've got these two um, adolescent girls who hatch a plan to do something dastardly. Um, but the, the kicker on the movie is that it is ice, ice cold. Um, Olivia Cook's character explains early on that she essentially doesn't have feelings. Um, so she has developed, for example, a, a thing she calls the technique which is the way in which you take some small, small gulps of air into your throat so that you feel like you're drowning yourself in order to elicit tears from your eyes. And this way you can like get what you want in certain situations. Pete, that's, Pete, that's what I do every time we go, every time before we go on air. That's basically what I do to get my own way on the podcast. So. <laughs> I, I definitely used the technique when I watched uh, The Greatest Showman on January the 1st. I wasn't just sobbing <laughs> from raw Michelle Williams emotion. But um, Is that where you just cried four and a half stars out for it, which I still don't understand to this day. It's wonderful, yes. Paul. It's wonderful. <laughs> um, but yeah, to, like to sum up on this movie, yeah, the two central performances are really strong and that's what holds the film up. Olivia Cook in particular absolutely nails doing this like, yeah, almost like effectless, uh, clearly sort of emotionless, uh, super controlled delivery of her lines where it's like only the, the minimum number of muscles in her face move to deliver any kind of information. Anya, Anya Taylor-Joy is great beyond her years. I think she's in her early 20s right now and she acts as if she's 10 years senior to that. And um, yeah, it's, it's 
a small story, but it's the kind of story that will grip you into your chair or onto your sofa for the duration, which is only about an hour and a half, I think. And um, yeah, Corey Finley is one to watch. Both actresses are ones to watch. Thoroughbreds is really good. Check it out. That's the end of this section, I guess. It is. We will be back very shortly with our coming attractions. So, back we are with coming attractions. Uh, Pete, I'm going to go first, if that's all right with you, sir. Sure. Uh, I'm going to throw down uh, Mission Impossible 5, 6, 7, I forget which number it is. Mission Impossible Fallout. Um, I didn't go... Well, I loved Mission Impossible 4. I quite like Mission Impossible 3. It seems to be a franchise that just keeps coming back and actually providing... Even with the last one, they're always entertaining apart from Mission Impossible 2. So I'm quite excited to see Tom Cruise throw his weight behind a franchise that he clearly loves. The last time probably I saw Tom Cruise in the blockbuster was The Mummy, so we'll, we'll move on from that. But Mission Impossible is a franchise that Tom Cruise has clearly always enjoyed. They're always stunt heavy. I think it's going to be quite exciting. My only slight reservation is they've cast Pete, your favourite man in the world, who I bought you a cardboard cutout for a Christmas present. Henry Cavill's in it, Pete. How does that make you feel? I mean... Charisma vacuum Henry Cavill. You can't do a cologne adverts his whole life, so you got to throw him in a movie every now and again. And to be fair to the boy Cavill, I think I said this on a show before, but after, like, slating him mercilessly, I found out that he is quite a committed jiu-jitsu practitioner, and my respect levels for him sort of went up quite a lot. So, yeah, all, all power to him, but he's a rubbish actor. <laughs> But no, I'm quite excited about Mission Impossible 5. I think it will do exactly what it says on the tin. I think it will be a very entertaining trip to the cinema. And I'm quite excited for it in the Venice. I'm quite excited for it. Pete, what have you got? Oh, but dude, we've gone ultra highbrow this week on coming attractions because I'm going to go with the one that I, <laughs> that I pushed aside last week and I can't push it aside any longer because it's massive. It's uh, Skyscraper starring oh, Dwayne. The Rock Johnson. Is that Dwayne The Rock Johnson with only one foot, Pete? Is that the film where he's only got oh, one foot? Oh, in the poster, yeah, I, I believe that's correct. Uh, the, the premise is essentially um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson plays Will Sawyer. Will Sawyer's family is in terrible danger. They're on uh, one of the higher floors of a skyscraper above the fire line. But he has been framed for starting the fire that is tearing through that building. Uh, this is your sort of um, like hero, hero yarn about how we can reverse terrorist attacks by strength and military power, I would imagine. But at the centre of that is Dwayne Johnson, and he's right nice, and I like watching him, and I watch almost anything he's in, and if nothing else, he's going to bring sort of good humour and, a, you know, the good old honest try to this one. So um, I can't hate on it. In fact, I'm probably going to end up watching it in IMAX and having quite a lovely time. Skyscraper is released. It Pete, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. It's like... Dwayne Johnson, he will always give 110%. I've said this before on the podcast. He will always give 110% to his films, no matter what film that he's in. So I'm right there with you, Pete. I'm excited about Well, I will always give you more if I'm allowed. Uh, the release date of this film, which is July the 12th. <laughs> and uh, the la last thing to note is uh, Neve Campbell's still getting work. So, uh, yeah, ne Neve Campbell has ca come out from somewhere. She was in uh, She was in House of Cards. Oh, was she? Okay. Um Cool. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, coming attractions of the uh, extremely art house variety from Paul and I there, Skyscraper and the new Mission Impossible. <laughs> we will be right back with our feature review of Hereditary. Oh my word, Pete. Oh my word. Which was the three words that I texted you after we came out of Hereditary. 
set this up before we get into okay. it. Uh, if you can, if you can. Okay. So the film Hereditary, if you've seen any of the promotional stuff, uh, trailers and so on, you will know is uh, a, a sort of uh, a chiller, uh, a thriller of sorts, a horror movie of sorts. And it's very much psychological um, as well as sort of shock horror and jumps and that kind of thing. Uh, at the centre is a uh, character played by the actress Toni Collette, who is at the very outset of the film, not a spoiler, uh, burying her mother. Uh, or, or attending the funeral anyway of, of her own mother. Um, within her family, there are also uh, two kids. One, a younger daughter, I think is something like 13. I think they say she's 13. She looks younger, but she's 13. And then a son played by uh, Alex Wolf, who is, I think, 16, 17, a little bit older. And her husband played by Gabriel Byrne, um, that people know from many, many a movie and a long and storied career. But Everything. Yeah, um, th- th- what what can I say to set this thing up? I mean, the the film is focused on and concerned with the things that are passed on, as you would imagine from the title, through generation after. We're told early on that the matriarch, the, the grandmother figure to the kids, I suppose, who's just passed away, um, had the condition DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, which in fact, and funnily enough, coincidentally enough, I should say, was the condition that was prescribed to Tony Collette's character in the United States of Tara, the TV show that Diablo Cody wrote. So it was like weird to see her in that territory again, but it also gave me great confidence that she was an actress who would be able to carry this film. I think that she very much does. And then I guess lastly on the the setting up of character is this daughter um, that I've mentioned, played by an actress called Millie Shapiro, who's got like this very, very distinctive face. Um, I can't say anything else for, for fear of being slightly offensive, but very distinctive face. And she is clearly troubled on more than one level, it seems, and maybe developmentally challenged as well. Early on, for example, as a piece of foreshadowing, we see her snip the head off a dead bird and put it in her pocket. Um, The film is laden with foreshadowing, uh, with hints at what horrors are to come. And this thing kept me feeling consistently, like, queasy, uncomfortable should we have a clip have we got a clip jack that makes this that, that works for the mood of course jack is like yeah. an endless fountain of clips from somewhere that, that <laughs> turn out good so yeah uh, here is a little clip might be something you want to say yeah like what i mean why would i want to say something so i could watch you sneer at me sneer at you i don't ever sneer at you. oh sweetie you don't have to you get your point across okay so fine then say what you want to say then peter I don't want to say anything. I've tried saying Okay, so try again. Release yourself. Oh, release you, you mean? Yeah, fine. Release me. Just say it. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. Do you understand? Right. I'm just going to, just goodness, before we get into the film itself, I I think, Pete, you're you're with me on this one. I quite often will criticise the people who put traders together for just going, what are you doing? You've given the whole fucking film away. Now, I can only assume Ari Aster, the director of this one, had final cut on the trailer because the trailer itself is a magnificent sleight of hand to what this film actually delivers. Like, so you think you might know what's coming in the trailer. Trust me, you really, really, really do not. 
Pete, are you with me on that one? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I would say so. I mean, I think you'll remember that when we were setting this up as a, um, a coming attraction, uh, I was talking about how the last time that there was a trailer that was really effective and set in a sort of creaky old house, uh, the film turned out to be Mother, and I was kind of hoping that no babies got ripped limb from limb in this movie. And yes, both trailers are really effective, but I think you're absolutely right, Paul, that like it's an effective trailer that doesn't also you know, mess up your enjoyment of the film by sort of delivering too much. It blindsides you completely. I think, I think it blindsides you completely from the film. And I think, you know, that we, we've talked quite long and hard about, about horror films on the show, as in many other genres of films. And I think this, this is just, to quote, to, to kind of paraphrase Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, this does not go the way you think. Like, this is, and it, it's, it's almost quite difficult to talk about spoiling it, and I'm not going to throw any spoilers down, but my word is this a powerful, powerful horror film. I think, I for me, I think the day, like the day of jump scares and lazy kind of cliched, like haunted house horror films, you do the kind of cliched horror films where the jump scares and something jumps at you and then you've got like a creepy mouth on you around. Like, this isn't that at all. Like, this is uh, a thinking person's horror film and I make no bones about saying that because I've read a number of comments on the Odeon Facebook page where people were laughing at it going, this was rubbish. You're idiots. Get out of the cinema. Go and see another film. This film, quite frankly, is incredible. Like it makes you think. It completely, completely fucks with your mindset. It is fundamentally a psychologically disturbing film, and it is an incredibly powerful piece of work. Pete, before I keep gushing, help yeah, me out. Yeah, I'm, I'm slightly nervous. You sound quite aggressive. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean the the, the best. Uh, encapsulation of how the movie made me feel because as you say Paul we can't you can't really get too much into the you plot can't. Without, you, without, you, you just can't you know, like... uh, annoying people but um, I felt quite a lot of this movie not sometimes people say like uh, oh I felt it in my bones or I got like a chill on the back of my neck or like these kinds of uh, physical manifestations of your own fear I felt this film like in the cartilage in my knees um, I felt it in like parts of my body where I don't usually feel movies or experience movies there was a section of the movie, and again, I can't say what it was, but where I genuinely actually like had my mouth open. And then for a little while, I was holding my hand over my mouth, which is the kind of like silly, nonsense, hyperbolic promotion that they give to like bad horror movies to try and get you there. You know, when you see like a test audience and they're all like yeah, yeah, wetting yeah. themselves over, you know, the Conjuring 7 or whatever. But like in this film, I, I'm genuinely not being hyperbolic. Like that's the way that it made me feel. And like... I can't talk about this film like without talking about why it might make certain people feel the way that it did. I mean, if you have any semblance of uh, mental illness in your family, um, there's no way in which I'm saying don't see the movie, but know that you're getting into territory that is likely to be, um, as in modern parlance, like quite triggering. So Pete, it's interesting you say that because I I, I text I text a family member mm. and said absolutely do not see yeah. this and we'll leave it at that. Yeah, I, I mean I can I can totally understand why. Yeah. And I, I don't know, yeah, yeah, Paul. Yeah. I don't know if you if you by any chance uh, read my letterbox write up on this film because I'm very rarely I did I, yes. I very rarely write anything on letterbox because I'm I don't yeah. know lazy. But um yeah, in this one I, I won't sort of read the thing out, but I basically um. I couldn't get from my mind a sort of recurring nightmare that I had, which was around um, sort of something related to my family and, and mental health and loss and death and that kind of thing. Um, and it maybe I could imagine if those things don't 
um, chime with you or don't strike a sort of personal chord with you, I can see to an extent why people are looking to pick holes in the film as being a fairly hokey ghost story with sort of supernatural elements. I get that, but like maybe marginally less aggressively than Paul, but I would, I would compel you to like just sit with these kinds of movies for a little while longer. If if 15 minutes after, when you've sat quietly and just had a little think, you still think that it doesn't work for you or it's laughable or it's over the top or, or whatever you, you believe, that's fine. But what I feel with a modern cinema audience a lot of the time is we're so ready for instant gratification that if we don't get something that instantly gratifies, we write it off. And I felt in the screening that I saw, I don't know about yours, Paul, but in the screening that I saw, a good third of the movie theatre um, either walked out there were walkouts or just started laughing at every scare yeah, people just started laughing so basically you should have two cinema screenings I want to pass the time go into the screening and act like a prick I like films go into yes, the yes but you can't have that though can you no, but you should no, have that honestly but, but I, but I go idiot, a different way like no, but, I was so angry with the way people responded to this just go to another film like, read right, about but, what you're seeing and understand what you're watching. But, right, but we don't build an audience by, like, calling half the people idiots. <laughs> like, I think that I think that the issue is more so that when you laugh at horror films, yes, it could just be that the horror film is ridiculous and over-the-top and silly and unbelievable and all those things. I think in a thing like this, with all these psychological elements, it's something else. It's when, you know, like when you cry because you've seen The Greatest Showman and you can't control your emotions? It's a bit like that, in the sense that... You, but... <laughs> when, when, but when you're scared, when you're on the edge of your seat, when you're sort of being poked psychologically for sort of over an hour and a half, at a certain point, people topple over and they go to the other side, which is, I'm safe because I'm laughing. This isn't in me. This is over there. And that's how I think I would explain that response. I, I don't necessarily credit all cinema go goers with like in immense intelligence. But at the same time, I don't I don't want to write them off. Well, I just no, think... In fairness, in the, in the screening that I have, we have people talking all the way through it from the beginning and then laughed at it halfway through. So it's a safety blanket though. So those it? people, but those people who talk from the beginning and then laughed halfway through are idiots. I'm sorry. Like they had no intention of giving it a chance. I'm not saying that everyone in there that was, but those people that talked from the beginning and then basically kind of tried their best to spoil the atmosphere, despite me asking them to be quiet, they didn't manage to kill the film because the film is still an incredibly powerful film. Um, to go back into the film and not just the audience, I mentioned earlier in my top five of the year, I think it has some similarities in in that like the 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 last the second half of the film for me had some similarities to uh to annihilation um mm. in the fact that it really really fucked with your mindset and really really made you question where you are and properly toyed with like elements of what's real and what's not and i really really like that about it i really like the fact it toyed yeah with it. i really like the fact it didn't go the direction you expected it and there's a moment halfway through which do not look it up but it is it will be probably the scene that stays with you for about the next four or five years well, of any film. Paul, like, it, it's it, incredible. It might like, be the scene where you like, where you vow never to do any drugs again for the rest yeah, of your yeah, days. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, my I, god. The, the other one I wanted to shout out in terms of sort of linking to other movies is one that I probably should have honourably mentioned because I think it came out this year, but I might be, maybe it was last year. Uh, the Ritual. It had, I think, some things in common with that. Year. That movie, okay, from last yeah. year, yeah, that yeah, similar to the ritual, yeah, I could yeah, with with the sort of, I mean, th there's a scene in the ritual, dude, where the guy ends up wetting himself. That 
fuck me up for life, for want of a better term. Like, man, oh man, it hit hard. And that movie's on streaming now, so check that out too. If, if you're into that sort of thing, obviously don't, uh, you know, have sleepless nights over it or whatever. But yeah, I think to sum up our thoughts, Hereditary is one that you have to see for yourself. It's one that is going to have a powerful impact. As Paul said, there might even be people in your life that you guide slightly away from this movie because of the buttons that it might... And then guide push. them away from your friendship group. <laughs> and, and also... Um, it, if we learn nothing else from Hereditary Paul, it is uh, never, ever trust Anne Dowd. Um, as soon as you see Anne Dowd in a movie, you know that that's, something's afoot. And just to, actually, just, 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 just on that subject, you mentioned Tony Kirk was in it. If she does not get Best Actress, full stop, for this film, then I've always said that Oscar hates genre. She deserves at least a nomination for this. Am I right, Pete? Because Tony Collette is incredible in this film. I believe so. Incredible. I believe so. I think the release won't the release won't do it any favors because of the time between now and Oscar season and I think that it most likely will get snubbed. But I'd love to see I'd love to see at least a nomination. It'd be just great to have her like in that conversation. Well, no, I know it's funny that that Get Out got nominated for best picture this year, so they they might finally be recognizing horror. So it, it, at least a nod would would be fantastic. And also Oh, and go on, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, prop, final props for me. Uh, Alex Wolf, who is the, the son in this film, I don't. I think maybe is the weak link when it comes to the performances. Not to say that he's sort of outright bad. This, of course, is not Nat Wolf, who is his brother, who we've seen in like. I think I said that it was the same guy, and it isn't. But uh, the, the guy who's in Death Note, for example, is is actually his brother, not not him. Oh, um, okay. Oh, they look a lot alike. What What I have uh, read and, and got from fairly decent authority is that there's a sequence in this film where he smashes his face into a desk. And uh, he wanted to break his own nose, apparently, for the sequence. Uh, which, kudos to the guy, I would not want to do that, it hurts a lot. Uh, but uh, he was told that the desk would be replaced with one that was sort of soft and padded and then he could do the scene. And when he did the scene, that change hadn't been made. And the blood in the film is his own blood flowing all the way down to his feet. So, uh, yeah, commitment. Well, I just wanted to add, add, I wanted to add something here. The, uh, the blood on the back of the cinema seat from the people speaking behind me, that was weird <laughs> as well. So, uh, yeah, if you want, uh, just to clarify what I said earlier, if you want to go into a film and talk a way through it, you are an idiot, and I make no apologies for it. Right, where are we next? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, well, we're at the end of the show, I suppose, Paul. Have you got anything that you want to pay credit for before we, credit to, I should say, before we uh, round this one off? Yes, I do want to pay credit to uh, regular, well, I've not put this up on the show before, but most film fans may or may not be aware of, and if you're not, you should be. Uh, it's something called Honest Trailers. Uh, and if you haven't seen Honest Traders, they are very, very funny. They do. Uh, I can see Jack laughing now because Jack's definitely enjoyed Honest Traders. Uh, but there's one in particular that shone out for me this week where they've done an Honest Trader for all of the Christopher Nolan films. And it just, it's in such a loving way. They, they respect Christopher Nolan, which I like, but they skewer every trope of a Christopher Nolan film. And I won't ruin it, but check out Honest Traders, Christopher Nolan. It's very, very funny. Pete, what have you got? Have you got anything? Yeah, I would say then for, for me, the obvious one for this week is um, one that I feel like I champion a lot, but the, the series, The United States of Tara, because Tony Collette is so good in this movie and because it's another... Where can I find it, Pete? I've not seen it yet. Where can I see uh, it? I'd have to do some research, Paul, that I obviously have not done. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, I mean, it'll be around. Um, it came originally came out, this, this thing, in 2009 and ran for a, a couple of years. Um, they're just 30-minute episodes, but I mean... 
if you want more reason to see this, other than the fact that Tony Collette's fantastic and a bit of a treasure, and the fact that I think, anyway, Diablo Cody is a, an emerging talent as a writer, um, it's also got in it Rosemary DeWitt, who I think is a, an excellent sort of smaller, middle-budget indie actress, uh, Kia Gilchrist, who's get on the up and up now, and uh, Brie Larson, that no one really knew about at the time. So, uh, yeah, find that if you have the opportunity, because it's well worth your time, um, and lots of people in it have gone on to do really good stuff as well, and it's sort of dealing with this territory of, of, of DID and, and things in a way that I argued at the time when we did this review is a lot better than that silly movie Split where James <laughs> McAvoy does a sort of improv yes. class on his own um, indeed indeed yes um, cool well that's kind that's, of it isn't it for today well so it's pretty much it so we will do our absolute best when we come back next week to have a Panamanian film for you if not, we will review a word with the film Panama in the, ti- Panama in the title. But we'll do our absolute best to have a Panama film next week. I would like to wish England all the best in their performance on Sunday, Pete. Uh, which is which is rare coming from me. Uh, and I think our feature review next week will be Adrift, I think, is out this week. Unless I'm otherwise mistaken. I think Adrift will definitely be looked at. Uh, but that's it from me. Pete, I leave it to you to say goodbye. Yes, uh, just to add, get at us on social media, please. And in addition, like and um, five star our... Like? Five star review our podcast <laughs> on Apple Podcasts because it really helps. And it kind of just gets the podcast to people who wouldn't otherwise know about the podcast. So like, do your little bit if you can. That'd be lovely. And then we will speak to you again in about a week's time shut up and sit down